Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. Well, we have a very exciting and special episode planned for today. We've got an exciting guest. This was actually not planned, as you know, if you listened to last week's episode. Uh, we were trying to get into uh, things that you should do in the off season and all the things you have to do to get prepared for the upcoming spring. And, uh, you know, if you've got any borrowed equipment or if anybody gave you something free or you were at a yard sale and found a good deal on something, uh, we were going to talk about all those things. But I had a unique opportunity to catch up with a gentleman whose videos I've watched on YouTube for years and whose content I've enjoyed for a long time. And I know thousands of other people have as well. So, folks, without further ado, I want to introduce you to Ian Stepler of Stepler Farms. Well, Ian, hey, thank you so very much for agreeing to be on the podcast today. As I've told you before, I'm a big fan of your YouTube channel, Canadian Beekeepers Blog. Been been watching that for uh, for several years. And uh, in fact, I've, I've mentioned, uh, mentioned your channel on the podcast several times. So we're very excited to have you today. Yeah, well, thanks, Jeff. I'm happy to be here, too. Well, hey, if you would, uh, you, if you can just take a couple of minutes here, just give us a little bit of a background on, you know, how you got started in beekeeping, um, you know, how long you've been doing it, what made you to kind of transition to commercial if it wasn't already a family thing, just anything you think might be uh, useful to kind of give us some background on you and your operation. Sure. Uh, I think beekeeping, it might have come natural to me, but my story maybe kind of originates like a lot of beekeepers I hear and how they got into beekeeping and that's just kind of I stumbled into it our family isn't never has been involved with beekeeping we're a, a farm family cattle and grain farm and the farm's gonna have the centennial here uh this year so we've been here for quite a while very well established but i don't have that um back that would be the first generation beekeepers so we don't have that inherent uh, beekeeping uh, history within our family so it's kind of new to the farm <clears throat> i uh kind of got hooked with the beekeeping craft back when I was in university in the Diploma of Agriculture and just kind of stumbled into this beekeeping course they offer at the university. Bought four hives and that was 1999 and built up to 30 hives, lost them all except for one and then reinvested into the business and kind of built it into part of the farm makeup itself uh, just as the farm grew and as my brothers come back to the farm to help manage operations, it allowed us to focus on the grain, the cattle, and expand the bee farm. So it's been a good complement to the farm, growing from those four hives up to, I have 1,616 colonies in my winter shed right now. So it's become a, quite uh, in some obsession and my full-time job, really. <laughs> wow. That's, uh, I mean, that's 1,660. So when it comes around time to, uh, you know, like springtime and you're coming out of the winter and you're ramping things up, I mean, obviously you have a certain percentage of dead outs and, and those that didn't make it through the winter, but 
Um, you know, what kind of, what's your uh, like spring full strength numbers? I mean, I'm assuming you, know, you break off some nukes and you keep a few, uh, you know, create some additional production, uh, production colonies, but do you kind of, ha- you know, hover in that 1600 range or does it keep growing every year? Or? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you'll notice when you talk to most commercial beekeepers, they don't really know how many hives they have. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's a reason, like when I was a hobby beekeeper, when I was a smaller operator growing, I knew like my, you said, how many hives you have? Well, I have 151 and a half colonies, you know, because <laughs> I knew exactly what I had and I had track of everything, but you get a lot larger and especially in the intimate practices of beekeeping, like what I have, um, it's just, it's hard to really pin down exactly what you have because it's always in flux. You have your colonies going to winter. So right now is a good time to peg how many colonies I have because I have them counted because they're stacked in rows and everything. But once spring comes out, you start accumulating losses. Um, you also start identifying hives that are failing. And then you start taking some of the hives that you built the previous year and incorporating them into the system to replace those dead outs. And it becomes just a revolving cycle. So how many hives do I have? I, you know, I like to, I have 1,616 in there right now. Um, maybe through the worst part of spring before we start building again, it'll go down to 1,200 hives and then we'll build it back up to 18 and 1,900 hives and just kind of continual flux, flux back and forth. I like to peg a number for easy math uh, at 1,500. So it's, you know, it's just kind of very dynamic in that nature. Yeah. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. Now, are you, are you, I'm assuming you probably do a little bit of everything. I know we had a good discussion earlier about some, some queen rearing and some of the things that, that Carrie's doing for you there in the shop. And, um, you know, in my mind, I always see, you know, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to create our, our queens. We're going to set up new nukes. The nukes are going to support our production colonies. You know, are you, um, do you have a full, you know, I know you do honey extraction, but are you doing like a, uh, like Stepler Farms, you know, honey, where people drop by and you're doing retail sales of honey, or are you doing kind of bulk with it? What types of things, I guess, are you doing to sort of, you know, that comprise the whole business and everything that you do to make it, you know, what it is? I'd say the main focus uh, on our farm is strictly honey production. Like we're not we're not into any type of pollination opportunities out here. Uh, we do sell bees when we have surplus, but the main focus of the farm is basically just self-sustaining our operations. So most of our work goes into uh, building the queens, building the nukes, and most of that is used to incorporate into our business just to help sustain the youth within their operations and such. When we do have uh, surplus, we do sell, and we do sell queen cells, and we do sell nukes. I have a bunch of nukes sold already, actually, because I'm anticipating a good spring. Uh, But we're just focusing on the operation itself, and we focus on the honey sales, which is bulk. So we do, you know, there isn't a beekeeper I know that doesn't sell honey out of the honey house. So we do quite a bit of honey house sales to neighbors and to the re- local retail store and that. But most of our honey is sold through Bee Made, which is a uh, um, a packer of um, Western Canadian beekeepers. So we sell our name. Uh, so there, how many is it? there's about 350 of us beekeepers together in a cooperative, and we sell all of our honey 100% Canadian honey underneath the B-Made brand. So we sell about 25 to 30 million pounds of honey right across the country into the States, uh, Japan, Caribbean, and that. Uh, <clears throat> most of the honey, private label honey, in some of the big chain stores in Canada, I'd say a good portion of that is uh, B-Made honey. So we represent ourselves pretty um, seriously on the shelf. And I, you know, I think it's doing pretty well. It's, one thing about... Uh, I'll just kind of dive into just the marketing part of what we do. I'm selling my honey to a packer, but by selling my honey to a packer, which I am part of the cooperative, it just helps me keep that connection to my product in the drum, sold to the packer, onto the retail shelf. And it just adds another layer of um, connection to my product as it's being sold ultimately to to the consumer. So it feels like my 300 50,000 pounds of honey I produce here every year, I feel like I'm able to market and follow the honey right to the producer at the very end. And there's a lot of beekeepers that sell in the open market and they lose that connection because they sell it to the broker and they don't see it after that fact. But I can see it. I can see it being packed. I can see it being marketed. I can see it on the shelf. I can see the consumer grabbing that honey and using it. And I really appreciate that because I put a lot of pride behind my product 
and a lot of energy. And I like to see my product represented on the shelf with the dignity it deserves, right? I know it's not being adulterated. I know it's not being mixed off. I know it's being sold to the consumer the way that I would be selling my own honey out of my honey house here. So things, things are working pretty well for us here. Yeah, that is really awesome. And I think about when I think of things like that, I think about what great lessons that those pass along to our kids, you know, to be able to say, hey, look, see all the hard work and look at everything we do every single day. And here's the end product. I think that's that's really cool. Yeah. And I hear a lot of beekeepers that uh, they'll criticize honey on the shelf, honey on the retail shelf as being garbage honey. And every single time I'll point out to them, I say, no, that honey in the shelf that you're identifying here from one of those major chains is 100% Canadian honey, 100% from your backyard here within the area. This, these retailers are displaying that product with the uh, dignity it deserves. And if you have a problem with honey or, or how it's being displayed, you need to take it to your retailer and figure out what's going on and push that campaign forward. And I think that's one thing that um, Canada does, is doing a better job at right now is providing more of um, traceability or maybe that's not the right word, but the consumers are demanding quality and they're not demanding, you know, organics or anything like that, but they're demanding authenticity and they're making sure that the products they buy in the shelf are actually what's being described in the label. And the retailers are hearing that and they're then going and making sure they're sourcing products that can then meet that demand. And that's very important, I think. And that's driven from the consumer itself and I think that attitude needs to be passed on and maybe adopted further down into other jurisdictions like in the States maybe or through uh, other places in the world. It's ultimately the consumer that decides what should be on that shelf. And if we can provide them with that quality product, the consumer is going to be happy. So as beekeepers, instead of criticizing um, the uh, you know broadly based, accusations like that i think we need to be careful and we need to be able to manage our own narrative and say hey yeah you know what um, you can buy a local from the beekeeper but also we can provide that local beekeeper product on the shelf and provide that same service to the consumers all the same and we're proving that with bmade we're doing that exactly with bmade and that's one of the reasons why bmade has been able to hang on to uh, their their contracts right across canada and these major chains um competing against this offshore crap coming in just because a consumer is demanding authenticity and we can and we can guarantee that yeah. now, i kind of straight off uh, <laughs> your comment there a little bit so <laughs> take no, that no. with a grain of salt <laughs> well that's great you know honestly we could probably have a two-hour discussion on that topic alone because it's a big deal you know and with all yeah, of the uh, i don't want to say counterfeit but you basically have you know uh entities throughout the world who've been banned from being able to export their honey into the u.s because they're cheating right they're putting in you know corn syrup yeah and other kinds of things to, you know, to fake the system so they can give us something that's inferior. And yeah, and it's all about public trust. I mean, as soon as you lose the public trust, you lose your marketplace. And then you all of a sudden open up your marketplace to absolutely everybody else who doesn't care about public trust, right? And that's something we need to do as producers is embrace that public trust and capitalize on it. So as soon as like our cooperative, we're in just a unique position, we know we have 100% Canadian honey because we are Canadian beekeepers. We are marketing our honey uh, and we can market almost to, from the beehive right to the consumer on the retail shelf in these major chains. <clears throat> we have that ability to make that track. We're tapping into the public trust and they're rewarding us for it. And it's a beautiful thing. And I think that's what more of agriculture needs to do. And I'm not saying that the United States should just be you know, only U.S. honey or Japan is only Japan honey. I'm just saying like the product that we're producing to make sure we can back it up with authenticity so we can, you know, sell into uh, markets like Japan. They know they're buying a wholesome Canadian product that hasn't been adulterated, that's been produced by that beekeeper over there and then enjoy that product, same down in the States and vice versa. We can enjoy American products up here knowing that, yes, this comes from those producers down there. We know how it has been produced and, and all the pros, all the steps involved in producing it. And we can enjoy that product up here too. So it's just being able to prove the authenticity and, and prove that the quality hasn't been adulterated. Uh, I think we're going to be able to tap into a much larger thing than that we can really appreciate. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think you hit the nail on the head across multiple aspects of that without a doubt. 
Well, now, and the great thing too is that my number two listener group is is Canada as a uh, as a uh, country. So it's good to again having you on is great because we do have a lot of listeners up there. As you know, there are some some core fundamental skills in beekeeping. You know, they, they really don't change wherever you live, but you know how you manage your colonies year round is vastly different. And we touched on this earlier. So as an example, um, you know, folks down in Florida and in, in the South here. Um, you know, they don't have to do a whole lot to winterize their bees, but, you know, as you, as you have mentioned before, you know, all yours are indoors. So this is why, you know, I encourage all new beekeepers because this is the primary, you know, target demographic and group that we're, we're trying to reach with this podcast. And I tell them, look, you know, join a local bee club, find a local mentor, you know, someone in the area who can kind of show you the ropes, help you learn the things that are specific and unique to doing things, you know, in your geographical area. So, you know, with all that, you know, being said, um, you know, what types of, of recommendations would you have, you know, because again, because there are so many listeners up in Canada, you know, what would you say would be a good kind of overwintering strategy, you know, things to consider? Like I, I've told people I had a winterization podcast, I think it was about two podcasts ago, and it was very high level and generic. But one of the big things I focused on is wet bees are dead bees. You know, if you allow condensation to get into the hives, drips down on the bees, they get wet, they get cold and they die. But you know, from your perspective, I mean, you're in the cold and I, I personally, I, I'm thinking honestly in, in a few years, maybe moving up to Montana or getting, you know, probably closer to you all. So what types of things do the beekeepers in Canada, in the Northern U.S. or any cold climate, what are the considerations you guys have to take that might be unique and different from the folks in the South? Yeah, that's a, a pretty loaded question. I think what I'll start with is, um, you know, a guy you should talk to, a very interesting fellow, Corey Stevens. He's a VSH producer out of Missouri. And he told me one time, just within his breeding program, he says when they're working through pulling out traits that are favorable and stuff like that, he said, there's no advantages or disadvantages, there's trade-offs. And so you got to look at everything as being a trade-off. You're going to gain something, you're going to lose something, you're going to lose something, you're going to gain something. <clears throat> so he says, you just got to be able to balance those trade-offs to be able to achieve something that's desirable and something that's workable for you. So when we kind of look at how we want to manage our bees to uh, manage the conditions that are around us, we have to acknowledge that we have to focus on all of these advantages, but we also have to focus on the disadvantages. What balance kind of fits the skew, right? So I'm looking at my area in, in uh, southern Manitoba, and what do we have here? We have long, cold, snowy, windy winters, and that makes just about an impossible environment to winter bees outside, but not because I know a lot of beekeepers who winter outside, right? So they set themselves up appropriately. But as me as a beekeeper, I'm identifying all these disadvantages and trying to manage those. So what I've done is I've taken my bees and removed them from the external climate, all those conditions, and I've moved them inside to shield them from that. A very effective strategy to move them inside. But because I did that, also, now I have this whole big heap of problems that are associated with that. Even though, you know, I've managed all those other disadvantages, the trade-off was now I have those other heap of disadvantages I now have to deal with. So I just have to kind of balance the whole act, whether or not this, uh, that my management practice is actually beneficial or not beneficial. The guys who winter outside right now, they don't feel that managing indoors is beneficial because they just don't want to manage those other sets of problems that it uh, is influenced onto them. So I guess what I'm saying is, is very specific. The way we manage our bees are, are not only specific to the area and environment around us, but it's very specific to us. How do we want to manage these bees? How do we want to approach these challenges and then work through all these issues to be able to be successful in their craft? Uh, so it's a hard answer to, you know, answer you can't really outright answer it because there is no answer. Just how do you approach uh, the situation of wintering? So when I'm looking at this winter, it's cold, windy, snowy. I remove them from those conditions. I'm moving them indoors, and that provides them in a little bit more of a static environment, uh, very consistent. So I'm targeting consistency. I'm targeting the temperature within the hive, like uh, four degrees seems to be that magical number where the bees consume, or I guess you could say the most efficient at wintering throughout. And it also sets up the environment where the bees can set themselves up in this state of trance, 
because there's no there's not a lot of variability. They can just set themselves up into this cluster and just kind of zone out for a couple of months and help prolong their life until it gets into spring. And it provides a huge advantage that way. Um, I think uh, outweighs more of the disadvantages. By bringing them inside like that now, I have to uh, monitor the uh, conditions in that shed. So it has to be four degrees, like I said. I have to uh, provide air exchange to remove humidity because we don't want it too humid inside and CO2. CO2 is very debatable, but just managing those conditions. The biggest problem probably is um, keeping them cool enough. Managing indoors is uh, we kind of approach the complete opposite strategy as managing outside. You think about managing outside, you're trying to keep them warm, you're packing them up, you're trying to reduce that heat loss and helping them conserve their energy while managing indoors, all of a sudden we have to think it completely opposite. We have to keep them cool. <clears throat> we have to keep them uh, in a state where they're not too active and not consuming too much and trying to keep them in their box because if it gets too warm, they'll start leaving their box and have <laughs> high losses. So, you know, it's completely opposite. So we do that by using the advantage we have through winter is this cold, consistent air temperature outside we just pump that cold air through the shed to try to pull that temperature down in the shed to maintain those very static conditions like we've had a cold winter so far i'm just looking outside and we're in another snowstorm windy as heck <laughs> um it's uh it's not that cold but uh, the end of tomorrow night it's gonna be minus 30 again it's been a very cold winter that shed i'm pumping air through continuously just ventilation my minimum air exchange would be kind of like a table fan on medium so there's always air coming through it ramps up when the shed warms up so i can pull more hot air out but those bees inside that shed can keep i have a 40 by 45 shed 12 foot ceiling 1616 colonies in there and i can keep that shed at four degrees celsius through minus 35 weather in a week-long process it's just an amazing thing each and every one of these colonies are kicking off like 20 or 25 watts of heat energy at all times and just a tremendous amount of energy and you know that's what they use to heat themselves and this is something that we have to manage now we moved them indoors that you're trying to manage that heat now and uh, keep them all calm and collected and cool inside the shed so that's my approach you know you take my approach and you try to uh, transpose that onto somebody maybe in alberta even in Alberta, you or let's say Montana, let's say you're going to be keeping Montana, you try to mimic what I'm doing up here. You can do it very successfully, except you get warm spells through the winter, and that rise in temperature just makes it that much more difficult to keep your bees indoors. You know that trade-off is you got to manage that that heat production in that shed. And if you can't do it without door air temperature, you start have to having to realize you have to bring in. And other steps to cool the sheds down, like refrigeration. And you notice down beekeepers in Idaho or Iowa and like that who are uh, using potato cellars to winter some of the bees before they go to California, they have to use refrigeration units to be able to keep their bees cool. But that disadvantage doesn't outweigh the advantage that's being presented to them by moving them indoors, just by keeping them, you know, shutting them down, keeping them kind of static, and just helping them prolong that long life be as far as they can as low activity as possible so i hope that provides feedback that you're looking for no it does you know there's a lot more moving parts to it than i thought in my mind in my mind it's you know you've got a uh, a forklift we're rolling them in we're going to set them in here we pull away we drive off and just come back in the spring i mean not quite that simple but you know relatively you know, set it and forget it kind of thing. But obviously, like you said, there's a lot of active monitoring, a lot of, um, a lot of that goes into it with, even with that approach, right? It's not going to be like a yeah. uh, easier way to go. And indoor beekeeping doesn't mean a lot of beekeepers will get the misimpression that, uh, <clears throat> you can bring uh, colonies that are maybe in trouble and get them through winter. It doesn't mean that at all. You have to follow all the same fundamental basics as you would wintering outside. They have to have almost zero mites on them. They have to be healthy, well-fed, good queens. All those same basics have to follow suit as you're wintering indoors because they'll fall apart indoors just the same way they'll fall apart outdoors. It's just as providing us the ability to control the conditions to build, provide us the ability to predict a little bit more on their ultimate outcome coming out of the shed 
maybe focus on more efficiencies like feed consumption efficiencies and not, uh, and, and maybe, you know, sometimes you have some extremely variable late season weather that comes through and that can really hammer outdoor colonies because it sets them on their head by putting them inside. You're providing, you're, you're shielding them from those variable conditions and you can maybe manage those variable conditions a little more effectively. And the other reason why I winter indoors, because I hate wrapping beehives. <laughs> so <it's, laughs> you know, when you get into beekeeping, my philosophy is you find all the things you hate and you focus on that to <laughs> remove that hate from the craft because otherwise you're just going to hate your job all the time. <laughs> so wrapping beehives is one of the jobs I hated because it's, you're always, um, you know, on the farmer busy. So I always leave, left the wrapping till the end of the job. And as always, you see either snowing or half raining and you're cold and your fingers are frozen and you're trying to wrap these colonies up and mice get into your wrap and make a mess and it stinks and bees are cranky and they're still, even though it's cold, they're coming out and nipping you at the face. It's just a miserable <laughs> job, you know. <laughs> I much rather go with my easy loader, go pick them up, put them on the truck, Fork, left them into a row, close the door, and be done with it already. So there's yes. there's a, there's a lot of reasons why we choose our certain management practices. And like I said earlier, some of those reasons are personal. <laughs> 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 so we just deal things the way we see most appropriate. That's so funny, you know. And I and I tell people all the time. I say, you know, if if you hear people who are you know large scale commercial operations talking about the way they do things, it's great informational. It's good to know. It's good to understand their perspective. Lots of information they can provide. But just keep in mind too that not everything that that you are going to do is going to be the same thing they're going to do, and vice versa. You know, the idea of going and wrapping sixteen hundred colonies that's pretty laborious. That's pretty time intensive. So. Um, you know, I always tell people like, yeah, just because it works in one scenario doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Hey everyone. Thank you for listening. And I hope that you're enjoying the show and are finding the information to be useful and valuable in order to help keep the lights on. We do need to take a quick commercial break. Thank you so very much for hanging in there and I appreciate you. We will be right back. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans. Like for a new ride, or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FTIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everyone, welcome back, and thank you for staying with us today. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I always enjoy hearing about your experiences, answering questions, and learning more about the challenges you're facing in different parts of the world. So please keep them coming. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Now let's get back to the show on the Beekeeping for Newbies radio network. Okay, that's not a real thing, but I'm trying to make it sound more official, so just play along, all right? Thanks a lot. Now, are you, you're overwintering in, like, single 10-frame deeps, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and nukes. I have uh, some five frame and six frame nukes in the shed also. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, you touched on something that leads me into the next topic I wanted to get into with you, but you mentioned, Hey, these, these bees got to be healthy. Varroa counts, you know, mite counts have to be low. Um, you know, yeah, disease, absolutely. yeah, with, you know, disease and, uh, what, what they were referred to, you know, IPM or integrated pest management in the beekeeping world. 
Um, you know, everybody's heard of Varroa and, and treatments like uh, Apovar and oxalic acid and, and so forth. And, you know, I'm always contending with, you know, the small hive beetle and wax moth. And, oh, you know, there's always, yeah. there's always something, but, you know, American foul brood, European foul brood, chalk brood, nocema, there's, the list goes on and on. And, and what I would ask of you is, you know, what's the biggest kind of pest issue that you're dealing with up in Canada? And, and what recommendations would you have to newer beekeepers? You know, we try to teach them early on, here's what normal looks like. You don't have to know exactly what's wrong. You just need to be able to recognize that something's different or that something is wrong. But, you know, how would you respond to that? What, what do you think would be the best way to kind of, you know, tell a new beekeeper, this is the stuff you, you should be doing and maybe things you should look out for and how you should handle and manage some of those things. Yeah, as being a cattle producer, I'm a big believer in keeping good animal husbandry. So by looking after your problems is very important. Like you look at a cattle farm, for instance, if there's a problem, or let's say you have a 100-head cattle farm and you have a 10-head cattle farm just a mile down the road, what happens on that 10-head cattle farm or what happens on that 100-head cattle farm doesn't really influence each other very much because they're very contained within their separate little operations. So the management between those two practices doesn't really matter to each other, but in beekeeping it does. Because we have to appreciate that our bees fly and that bees are opportunists. <clears throat> so they'll go and they'll tap in. For some, you know, it just shows you how precious the honey resource is <clears throat> to bees because they'll go through great lengths and take tremendous risk to rob it out of a dying sickly colony to bring it back to their own, ultimately infecting their own colony just to get their fingers on those resources, you know. And that is just it. When you have a colony that is suffering or maybe failing because of disease, <clears throat> it leaves the opportunity open for other colonies within a two-mile radius or however far they'll fly to go into that colony, rob out the resources, but then take all that problem and spread it out to all the rest of the colonies around them. A huge issue. And as new beekeepers, I think they need to appreciate <clears throat> that what they do directly relates to everything else that's going on around them and vice versa what's going on around them is influencing to what they're doing there so animal hunters husbandry is number one first off you got to learn your diseases uh, and especially like besides all else american fowl brood is probably the worst one just because of its um, context you, you get american fowl brood in the bees have just such a terrible time trying to clean it up that it's just takes colonies down and the bees can't deal with it. So ultimately the best thing to do with those colonies is you have to burn them. It's just nothing around that. It's just the best thing you can do is just start from scratch. Uh, and if a colony is going down with American fell root, it infects all the rest of the colonies around them. And it just, you know, infection can just fester and spread like that. So you have to be aware of that. Uh, my biggest point of advice that I can give to new beekeepers is like you mentioned mentors find somebody that you trust that'll come in to give you uh you know a little bit of advice and don't be intimidated to have someone else look at your colonies and point out issues because it's very important that if there's an issue going on that you can recognize it and then accept assistance to be able to deal with that problem and maybe if it's not another beekeeper because you're intimidated because you know how things are uh, reach out to your state or provincial apiarist, and that is their job. Their job is to come in there and help you identify and deal with these issues. And if it's American Fowlbird, they're going to tell you you got to burn that colony. Then you burn that colony because that's ultimately the best thing you can do for all the bees within that area. Now, the other thing is Varroa mite, and it spreads exactly the same way. I mean, those little buggers are hitchhiking on bees and they're spreading between hive and hive and hive and drifting between all the colonies around. So you have infection, even though if you think you're controlling your uh, viral mite infection within your nest, your bees could still be going out to a neighboring colony that is crashing because of viral mite and then ultimately bring those mites back into your yard. And I find that with my, my operation, I think I'm doing very well with my mite control. And all of a sudden I find this pocket just kind of flare up on me and I'm thinking what is going on here my treatment's not working well it's not necessarily treatments aren't working it's probably reinfestation from outside colonies that is polluting what's going on in there so because of that we have to incorporate within our treatment regime we have to incorporate monitoring 
And that's probably one of the most important things that a beekeeper can do is just continually monitor and assess the situation at hand. And then once you can, you know, measure the situation that's happening, you can better act and react to certain circumstances that fall in your lap. I don't like talking about types of treatments and treatment regimes because everything is very specific to your audience, like wherever you are. There's different requirements that have to be followed in the States as there is in Canada, or even if you have viewers in Europe, there's different, you know, it's all regulatory, so I can't really speak on that. But just having the grasp of the situation at hand is probably the most important thing you can do. And I'd even extend that to, I know there's a lot of different philosophies uh, within our craft. You have beekeepers are more commercial that are... um, will adopt treatment practices, maybe chemical treatment and such. And then there's also other beekeepers are more naturalists where they feel that bees can, you know, fend for themselves. They don't want to, um, they don't want to use treatments and they want to keep things as natural as possible. I don't have any problem with that, with the natural aspect of it. As long as that uh, beekeeper monitors and as long as beekeeper knows the situation at hand. And if there is a situation at hand, as long as they then deal with it. And if they want to deal with it through treatments or chemicals and such like that, they have to identify the problem and not allow that problem to be spread amongst everybody else around them. And, you know, if their colony is sick and dying, they're not ready to treat it. Maybe they should just kill that colony off so it doesn't do any more damage than it already is doing, right? So there's, there's a lot to do with this. And the best thing is knowing and, you know, the other best thing is just understanding and just kind of put that together and try to manage the bees in a respectable manner. So I really like your explanation kind of better than mine, uh, specific to like the holistic beekeeping kind of approach, because I've had several people who have said, well, I'm not going to use chemicals. And this is, and I've said, look, just because I basically, kinda, I kind of said bees aren't going to survive in the wild without treatment. I mean, essentially Varroa is out there it's going to lock on. And if those bees aren't getting some kind of care treatment, you know, unless they have some kind of a, you know, um, inherited resistance to Varroa, which I've, you know, I've heard there's mixed stories about that, but in the absence of having some type of resistance to Varroa, uh, I said, if you are not providing treatment to your bees, you're going to be creating this massive breeding ground for Varroa until it kills your colony and how many others around you. But I think your explanation of saying, I understand that you don't want to treat with a chemical and you want to be more holistic and that's fine, but you have to make sure you're monitoring and taking appropriate action. And that's the part I think maybe a newer beekeeper might struggle with. They're brand new to everything anyway. And now they're trying to get into some of these more advanced things. Okay. Here's how you do an alcohol wash and here's what you're looking for. And, yeah. But yeah, I think that was a great point you made there. Um, and then a call. And the uh, thing is uh, too, or sorry, I just stepped on you, but no, the thing is too, just because, um, their colonies look healthy and just because they don't want to carry forward with certain beekeeping practices and it looks like that you're successful and you have this little bee breeding program going on and you're going to you know, breed this mite-resistant bee, uh, that will be completely wiped off the map just by reinfestation from a neighboring beekeeper around you whose colonies maybe are having trouble infest your colonies and they will die anyways just because of the influx of disease. And that's just the very nature of infection is you have a flare-up and it spreads. And if we're not able to prevent that spread, it's just going to, you know, explode into, you know, eruption of disease and just spread more, right? So even though you have something really cute going on, uh, doing this little breeding project, you'd still have to realize all those outside factors will just completely minimize everything you're doing just by the very act and very nature of bees. So in a way, we have to accept that. And if we can't accept that, then I guess we're all done for. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. And it goes to commercial beekeepers, too. Like, I don't want to sound like I'm being hard on small guys, because there's a lot of big commercial beekeepers that do not put enough attention towards the husbandry of their hives. And it becomes... I. My argument isn't so much to the big beekeeper because they have so much on the line that they put a lot of attention towards it. My argument isn't to the small beekeeper because they really only have a few colonies. Like, what damage can it really do? My argument more so is to those mid-sized beekeepers. I think those guys should be our target in trying to reach. Those mid-sized beekeepers, I was one of them at one time. You have you used to have 10 hives. Now you've grown to 250 hives. 
you have a job on the side, <clears throat> you have all this work to do, you can't get your work done because of your job, you start falling behind, you know, and then all of a sudden, instead of just one colony, like a hobby guy, you have 250 colonies that are spreading this disease all over the place and it becomes more of a problem. So as these beekeepers are growing in size, they're following that ambition, that spirit to make something into something, you know, exciting, building a business. I want to be a full-time beekeeper. Oh, they have such a hard time making that transition because I can't spend enough time with those colonies as they build that workload out because they have that supplement job on the hand and things just absolutely fall apart on them because they're not on top of husbandry. So as those beekeepers, <clears throat> we have to target them and we have to send a message out to you guys that as you're building that operation, keep on top of those, that husbandry. That is job number one. Because if you can't control your husbandry, not only are you going to be a problem to everybody else around you, but you are going to completely fail as an operation and you won't be able to stage out, of, out into something more exciting than what you built there. So that's just my message to beekeepers. We've got to be careful on pegging demographics like that, right? Sure, sure. Because it's a problem for everybody. But at the same time, we have to focus in on what what is the actual issue here. It's not the hobby beekeeper. I mean, seriously, it's the guys that just don't have the time to be able to put into their colonies and look after the issue. You know, we have to make sure we look after husbandry. Job number one is husbandry of our hives. Uh, great point. Absolutely. It's funny how, as you're talking, I can see like four or five other things that keep popping up and I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta rein this in or we'll be here all day. Uh, <laughs> uh, we are beekeepers. We tend to talk and talk and talk. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I'm actually, uh, I'm mentoring a gentleman who's local and we got on the phone the other day and like, I took one deep breath and I think I talked for about 25 minutes straight and I got to the end and I was like, I'm sorry, man. I get a little excited about this. So, uh, it happens. Yeah. Um, I make a rule because I'm on YouTube now and I have a lot of exposure, I guess. And guys will phone me. And I used to pick up the phone and then be just kill an hour and a half, two hours. And I was like, I can't do this. So I make a rule to myself now that I can't pick that phone up. You know, even though I want to, and even though I want to be polite and talk to beekeepers, <laughs> I can't do it because it just kills my day. So I say, okay, guys, I'm not talking to you on the phone. Give me an email. You know, I answer all my emails kind of short form if I have to, but it's just... Uh, you know, it's overwhelming. <laughs> well, you know, I, th I think the plan maybe moving forward is just you gather up all the emails. Once a month, you jump on with us. You know, you run through everything. We put all the information out there. And then you don't oh, have I to worry it. about calling everybody back. You can just knock it out in one big, you know, two-hour call, and we'll, we'll do it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's managing workload, right? Right there. You there. Go. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Hey, you know, speaking of um, of workload, I you know, I noticed um, you have this pretty awesome system. This is getting more to the hands-on piece of things, but uh, but I saw your truck with the boom and the the fork, like the pallet forks on it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's a pretty awesome piece of machinery. Oh yeah, that's uh, comes from Australia. It's an easy loader just kind of like a boom jib crane is what it is articulating is guy can reach anywhere out 16 feet out lifts uh it won't lift a barrel honey i think sometimes they say it will but i won't test that but i just needed to be able to lift five or six full boxes of honey and um i bought that like i was talking earlier uh, about templates. When I first got into beekeeping, I followed the, much the same process as much everybody else. Is you know you have your four-way pallets and you hire a crew of guys and you have a forklift and pallets and and I just got tired of dragging forklifts around and I didn't solve the actual awkward lift that I was trying to solve, which is lifting honey, heavy honey boxes off a colony. I, no matter how many forklifts you have in the yard unless you relieve the problem with hiring more guys, you're still lifting those heavy, heavy boxes of honey off the colonies. And it's not an easy lift. Like this is over our heads and we're sometimes we're twisted and we're bending over and it's just killed my back. So <laughs> I was looking for a solution to that. And my neighbor had one of these things and I kind of looked to see what he was doing and it's an expensive little piece of machinery. So I sat down and dad told me, well, he said, I might as well invest into your back now when it's good than when you have it buggered up. So, <laughs> so sure. he, he uh, lent me a little bit of money, kind of like on a work loan, I guess you can call it. So we bought this crane. And with that crane, I then developed my entire operational strategy around it. So not only am I using it to help pull honey with the use of the skateboards, but I'd also set up my yards and two hive pallets, and I started moving all my colonies with it too, just to help make better payback for this uh, unit. 
And as soon as I adopted that practice and switched my entire uh, facility over to it, I haven't looked back. It's been quite a useful machine. And, I, you know, a lot of the beekeepers will tell you it's pretty slow and maybe cumbersome and you add a few more steps. Uh, so if you're looking to uh, build an operation <clears throat> that is quick and efficient, you know, the best thing you can do is hire guys or hire a forklift or buy a forklift. That's the best way to go about that. But my, my focus is more internal. I wanted to keep things more myself. I wanted to be able to hire kids from town. I mean, anybody who wanted a job on the farm, I could give them a job because the basic requirement of lifting 80 pound boxes wasn't there anymore. So, you know, anybody want a job, I hire, I keep everything. I don't hire foreign workers. I don't need to because I have enough workforce just locally here. I hire my own kids now. I'm not worried about wrecking their backs as we're working away. So it's just been such a nice uh, addition to my overall management strategy. It's just, I, it becomes part and parcel. I can't, when the arm goes down, I'm scrambling because I don't want to lift boxes anymore. You know, <laughs> I tell you, it's no joke. It is. I'm, you know, I, when I talk to people, um, again, cause I'm dealing with a, a lot of people who are, are very new and I've said to them, look, ignore what you hear from everybody else. And, and you've hit the nail on the head, right? Don't do what's right for everyone. Do what's right for you in your situation. And yeah. I've told them like, look, it's not common for somebody to make a, a brood chamber as an example with, you know, four shallows or, you know, but Hey, if that's what you got to do, if that's what works for your body, the bees are going to adapt. They're going to figure it out. They like oh, yeah. to move vertically if they can outside of that, you know, don't make it something that's, you know, 40 frames wide. They're probably not going to like that, but outside of that, they're going to figure it out and they're going to make it work. And, you know, I mean, I remember when I was early, you know, early into my beekeeping, I'm like, oh, I got three or four deeps. Let's just throw a bunch of deeps in there. And then you pull a deep off, load it up with honey, you know, with just packed full of honey. You do that twice and you're like, okay, that's a bad idea, right? And Yeah, um, and that's I would, pretty taxing on the back. Oh, absolutely. Sure. And, I, and a lot of the beekeepers I'm seeing and people that I'm engaging with, there are kind of, it seems to be these folks who are probably like mid to late 40s into about 60. There, a lot of them are kind of, they're, they're getting ready to retire from their full-time job. They're looking for, yeah. you know, a new hobby. And I know me, I'm, I'm 48. And I mean, I can tell you right now with my back and the way I've messed it up in the past already, I physically cannot, it's not an option for me. So I've got a little, you know, Kubota tractor and I've got forks on it and I can, oh, yeah. you know, and that's great. And I certainly, you know, one day when I grow up, I definitely want to have that same system you have. But I think at this point in time, I don't think I can justify that expense. And that's just it right there. You just said it right there. Justify. That's the hardest thing with incorporating something like the easy loader because you're kind of going out of the mold a little bit. Um, you have to justify the expense to yourself and that's easy enough, but you then have to justify the process to your neighbors because you're going to have everybody say to you, <laughs> why the heck do you need that thing? It's too expensive. Do things this way, this way. And that's the hardest thing. And as soon as I was able to um, ignore that and justify to myself the purpose of investing into this alternative way of managing bees, I mean, then I was off in the races. But the hardest thing was making that justification. I know some beekeepers here who try to mimic what I'm doing. <clears throat> Large beekeepers, too. I know beekeepers who adopted it and haven't looked back like me. And I know other beekeepers who sold that arm the following year just because they couldn't justify that with their neighbors. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so, oh, and I feel it goes with life. That's, what, that's a lesson we have to kind of acknowledge as we work through all of areas of life but you know even with you're going to work mediums instead of doing the standard deep through your brood chambers that's off the queue you have to be able to justify managing in that certain arrangement and as soon as you're comfortable with it being able to explain your purpose to everybody else then those are just become details right so justification is a huge issue yep yep absolutely so of all the day-to-day -day tasks that a bee beekeeper has and all the things that you do on a you know, regular basis, what would you say are, I, I kind of got a heads up on this one earlier, but what are your, your most favorite and your least favorite things to do as a beekeeper? Boy, you know, in the middle, at the back end of the honey pull, I hate bees. I hate everything to do with the business. <laughs> 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 then you get into winter and we get a break up here because we put them into winter for five months or whatever. And we get a bit of a break from the bees and then you start talking about them again and you, and you start looking forward to spring again. So a, a refresh, a break from this business is critical, is absolutely crucial because they just demand every aspect of your life. 
you know, I have how many in my shed right now? 95 million bees. And every one of those bees has a little whip. And they whip me all day long with that, right? I can't get away from them. <laughs> so you have to be able to, that's a good question, because you have to be able to identify the aspects you like and what's kind of attracted you to the business. <clears throat> and you also have to be able to identify what you don't like and be honest with yourself. And if you can be honest with yourself and identify those things that you don't like, you can focus on all those attributes and then maybe bring something to relieve that dislike about it. And the more things you can take away that you don't like, this adds that much more pleasure to your overall management of the business. So, and then that, that comes as you evolve through the business. Like what I liked and disliked when I had 500 hives is a lot different now than I have 1600 colonies going on now because everything it's a, the art of beekeeping is the same, but the processes are a lot different. So you start layering different processes, uh, different demands, you know, restraints, uh, rewards, and all that is a lot different. But right now, I think what I don't like, well, I hate robbing bees with a passion. If I could raise little, you know, breed little bees that didn't rob, that would be a much happier beekeeper. <laughs> I hate robbing bees. Um, I go through a lot, especially when you have a yard that's too close to the honey house and the guys leave the door open. Oh, uh, it's like, oh, you get punished for it and the workers get punished. And then you start, as soon as robbing season starts, we have a pretty intense honey flow through the first part of summer. So we can get away with a lot of things up here, leave the doors open or whatever. I uh, just manage bees a lot differently when bees aren't robbing. But as soon as the honey flow slows down a bit, and they step into that winter hoardy spirit and start robbing, you start following rules and you start making sure things are done a certain way. Otherwise, those little bastards will punish you. <laughs> so, you know, pulling honey, you got to be quick in the yards. Um, I would use escape boards, which leaves a stack of unprotected boxes on top. So you have cracks. Either you tape them up or cover them up to make sure the bees don't take that honey back. It's just that constant battle of robbing. Ooh, I hate that. The one thing I do like about beekeeping is one thing that's probably kept me in this business is just this unique connection it provides me to the environment, I guess. I wouldn't call myself an environmentalist, but being tied directly to agriculture, like we are a substantial farm here. We're very conservative-minded, conservation-minded is what I mean. Uh, just our landscape is extremely variable with hills and uh, valleys. Uh, we have some flat land that has sensitive type, salty type muskeg lands. We manage our property according to its type. And we're very focused on the management of our soils because the soils that provide us our livelihoods. One thing I like about the bees is it allows us to tap into the conservation, um, and the conservation, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just that, that whole sense of conservation in a different way, not just basically on the soil, but more so on diversity and the importance of having a diverse landscape and makeup right across the countryside. And farmers don't appreciate that because we look at anything growing other than that crop or the pasture grass as being a weed. And we do that for good reason, but we need to realize that there's other things that need to exist at the same time. And that's something we don't appreciate because we're not connected to that sense of of the environment needing that sense of diversity, except if you're a beekeeper. So I have a unique balance of being a grain farmer, cattle farmer, and a beekeeper. So I can see that need to be able to manage the land, manage the soils, manage the production. But at the same time, we need that diversity to be able to sustain our own honeybee operation, to be able to keep them well-nourished. If these bees aren't well-nourished, they can't collect that crop from that grain land, which we're growing every year. Is that balance, right? We need to appreciate that what we do on our landscape is directly reflective to everything else that exists. And I think that's being lost amongst a lot of farmers is just that connection that we, we think we're achieving sustainable efforts, but we're missing a very important, crucial part, which is that active diversity. And we need to be able to preserve that natural environment to allow things, not just bees, but natural pollinators, bumblebees, natural pollinators, other insects, other animals. We need a place to allow things to live and we need to do a better job in just establishing that balance a little bit better. 
You know, I, I absolutely love hearing that. I mean, that's one of the big things I think that drew me into beekeeping. You know, I started years ago kind of with a different beginning, but as I've, you know, acquired some land and I'm spending time on that land and I'm just getting more time, you know, out of the city, out of the suburban areas and just, just being just in it and immersed in it and recognizing that we have a massive impact on everything that's around us and we can do a lot more and, you know, it, it's tough when you look around the world and you see, you know, the waterways are getting destroyed with pollution and, and waste runoff and all these. There's so many aspects to it to where you can say, well, at least I've got this one little piece I can be involved in that is making yeah. a difference. And and there's that piece. I, I, I know you've experienced it because I've seen it in your videos before. But when you get outside and you've got thousands of bees flying around you right past your head and you're just like, wow, this is this is exciting. And uh, uh, yeah, that's right on point. I'm so happy you said that <clears throat> just that little piece. If we just appreciate that, if we have just little pieces, but all over the place, those little pieces, uh, maybe this is sounding flaky, but those little pieces all over the place comes to something substantial. And that's all we need to be able to achieve is just those little aspects of preservation, which add up to something that is really noticeable, something that really contributes. And that can be done by absolutely everybody within society. If everybody really give a damn, about you know our sustainable efforts and moving forward and you know recognizing our ecosystem and all that just by shifting our habits shifting what we do every day just a little bit makes a huge difference and if we can relate that down to uh, honeybees just by providing little pockets of the natural world all over the place i don't care where it is just a little wetland that maybe doesn't have to be farmed leave that alone maybe put more effort into the ditch allow natural growth as we try to manage these uh, conditions, all these noxious weeds and bulrushes and water management, that if we put a little more effort into managing those issues, but then allowing other things to flourish, I mean, that's a huge resource for pollinators to, you know, thrive on. But at the exact same time, when I say all this and these efforts we need to do to be able to preserve the landscape, I'm, my narrative also goes directly back to beekeepers and to environmentalists saying that we need to appreciate the act of development at the same time because we need to exist. There's a reason why we're growing these crops is because we need to eat and we need, uh, we don't need, but we want all these luxuries in life. So we have this act of development as we, you know, develop our societies and live. So we need to be able to allow development to happen. We can't, as beekeepers, tell that farmer not to farm his property the way it is because his hands are tied. You know, he's all economics. He's there managing the land best of his abilities, you know, making his livelihood on this and doing a very good job. He doesn't need a beekeeper to come by and say, you're doing this all wrong. Where's all these weeds? I need these weeds in your field because my bees are starving. Well, that just doesn't cut it. But if we go to these farmers and we appreciate what they're doing, and if we work with these farmers to maybe establish some of those little efforts all over the place, you know, those preservation around the edges, maybe, let's say, then maybe we can achieve the same thing where we can preserve the natural world, fortify our bees' diet, keep them healthy. And then as beekeepers, we can then also exploit the this huge abundance of wealth, like these flowers that grow across Canada here. We can maybe pull that honey crop off and find that balance between the two. So, you know, we, we beekeepers, we have our foot in both doors. We're, we're environmentalists in one way, but at the same time, we're also, we're a part of agriculture. We're a part of the whole system. We have to make sure that we don't alienate that aspect of our beekeeping craft. We have to make sure we contribute to agriculture at the same time. And maybe this is an opportunity where we as beekeepers can take uh, this foot in the door and bring that sense of environmentalism into the beekeeping conversation a little more effectively and maybe try to find these places where we can come together a little more effectively. So it's, it's an impossible, it, it's impossible. You look at my farm and I'm trying to balance this whole issue and I'll never achieve it because we're, there's always pressures on the grain side and development and there's always pressures on the honeybee side where I have to respect that development, but we still need to sustain operations. And how can I manage my grain farm in certain ways within these constraints without like hopping on that sprayer, the 120 foot boom and killing all the bugs within the landscape, right? How do I do that? Well, it doesn't mean that I don't do that. It means maybe I should do an extra few steps to 
mitigate the risks that that action would put on the natural environment, aka my bees. You know, there's there's certain things, certain practices, cer- certain strategies we can adopt to maybe help mitigate these issues to help us come closer together and manage this impossible issue that we're faced with right now. No, oh, amen. I, I mean, I think maybe you missed your calling. I think you maybe you could have been like a global agricultural advocate. I think uh, you really, <laughs> you know, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, there's so many things there that are just, as you're talking, I'm nodding. Yes, yes, yes. So now yeah. that's... And it's, it's a tough thing to convey because you don't want to sound flaky in one hand and you don't want to sound like a, you know, a, a cold-hearted developer on the other hand. It's it's an important, like you can't have the best of both worlds. They're like a business owner, you, you, there's no such thing as business personal life balance <clears throat> it's, a, it's a it's a lie it, you're always waited to look after that business your the business controls your life even though you want to pretend you have that balance of family you, you got to be able to identify and then manage things accordingly to sustain things going forward and for me like for business wise you know, i'm weighted 75 percent towards business and everything i'm doing here and i only carve out 25 percent for myself and the family that is what it has to be that's what allows me to work, move forward. It's not a balance, but it's acceptable to my family. <clears throat> it's just the way it is. It's not a balance, but it's, it's how I'm sustaining myself moving forward. And we might have to do the same thing as we recognize these issues within development and within the natural world is we're not going to be able to achieve that perfect balance. <clears throat> we're not going to maybe, we're not going to be able to claim that imbalance that favors us. Maybe we can find pieces here and there that maybe favor us this way uh, maybe favors them that way. And when we bring it all together, then it becomes a workable format. Without a doubt. Absolutely. It's that constant balancing act. And, and um, I agree. So one final, I, I, I feel like we could probably you know go for another hour or so. I don't want to do that to you or, you or I both, <laughs> but uh, one, one final question for you, uh, Ian, is, you know, any parting words of wisdom, right? You got brand new beekeepers out there. And, and I would say right now we're going into my second season of the podcast. So we have people who were listening all last year and uh, they're getting ready to start out this year. There were a few of them that jumped the gun. There are a few of them that are on the fence. Um, you know, what would you say as sort of the, just, in, you know, any words of wisdom, but primarily like the, Hey, no matter what you do, never do this, always do this, whatever you can think of that might help them to kind of get off the fence and make the commitment and just give it a shot or anything you can think of. Yeah, one thing right off the start, and maybe a little more applied, this would be a conversation geared more applied, maybe to more your question. Um, Any beekeeper, doesn't matter if you're a small beekeeper or a large beekeeper, the best thing you can do as a beekeeper is my advice is to build your bees and buy your boxes. And what that means is, if you're going to invest money, make sure you invest money into something tangible, something that you can grab a hold of, something that you can sell. Uh, I see way too many times beekeepers that get that bug, that ambitious spirit, and it leads them into thinking they want to be this beekeeper and they go and invest, let's say, $50,000 into a whole bunch of bees because they want to be a 100 hive beekeeper or something like that. So they buy all these bees, but they don't have the facility to support that, nor do they have the uh, know-how to build to sustain those operations and those bees die. And I hope they didn't have a loan against it, but if they do, all of a sudden they have this payment to make on nothing, right? Except for empty boxes. So my piece of advice to beekeepers getting into the business or maybe growing their business is if you're going to invest your money, build the equipment, build the facility, you know, invest your money into building the structure of your business and then build your bees, like buy your facility, build your bees. And what that does is kind of measures your growth to your own capability. So if you build a hundred boxes, let's say, and you had 10 colonies, it's going to take you a little while to build to then build those 10 colonies to fill those hundred boxes. And along the way, that just provides the sense of learning the craft. You know, if you make a mistake, it's uh, it's not a whole bunch of invested money out. It's just a whole bunch of your time and effort out. And bee- that's what beekeeping is. It's, you know, growing and contracting, growing and contracting. You got to make sure that when you grow and ultimately when the bees punish you and you contracted, that contraction doesn't cost you money, capital money that you invest into that business. You got to make sure that that contraction is just a part of the business process, which can be absorbed very easily. So if, in a roundabout way, I guess, 
It's just as simple as that. Buy your boxes, build your bees. That's the best thing you can do. Well, Ian, I'll tell you, you know, um, I, like I said before early on, and, I, and I've told you, I think, you know, by email that, you know, I've, I've watched the YouTube channel and, it, you know, it's one thing to see the channel, but to, to be able to engage with you in this capacity and in this way, um, I recognize that, that you take great pride in yourself, in your farm, in your family, your craft, the trade. And uh, I mean, I can't, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time out today. I know that this is going to, I get usually like, you know, a couple dozen emails in every episode. I know we're going to hear, hear from some folks on this one, how much they enjoyed it. Um, you are always welcome to come back if you have something, you know, fun or interesting you want to share. Or like I said, if you get tired of you know answering all those emails, you can always just come on here and answer them all on here. <laughs> but uh, no, we really do appreciate everything. And uh, I wish you and your family the best, especially for this upcoming bee season here that's right around the corner. And, uh, you know, don't be a stranger. Yeah, Jeff, thanks for that. I just love reaching out, communicating with beekeepers in this way. It's, something is not natural to me. I'm a very... Um, low-key kind of i'm the guy that sits in the back corner of the conventions and doesn't really say much just takes it all in so me kind of pushing myself more and more to the front is very unnatural for me but it's a real lot of fun connecting with beekeepers and just kind of exploring all these thoughts and such and but if you uh i'll make you a deal if you have some listeners and they compile a list of questions or comments or whatever uh, reach out to me and do a kind of a shotgun approach to me next time just boom 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 and you'll see what happens Sounds like a plan. We can make that happen. Well, Ian, thanks again. And everybody, it's uh, Stepler Farms up there in uh, Manitoba, Canada. And you can find him on the Canadian Beekeepers blog on YouTube. So that about wraps it up for this episode. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. And uh, we will talk to everybody soon. Take care. Be kind to one another. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.